So we've all now watched all 10 episodes of, uh, what's it called again? (laughs) 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 Sorry, let's try it again. You can't prove it. You got nothing legit. Welcome to the Dockets Staircase After Show, Chapter 3, A Striking Coincidence. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. Hey, Emily Tammon, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. Good. Ready to talk about Episode 3? Yes, but before we do... Yes, do you have a little few words you'd like to say? I do. This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for members of the criminal bar and judiciary anchored by the expertise of General Editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emond.ca slash cls and enter code STAIRCASE10 at checkout. Do it. Live from ABC 11, this is Eyewitness News at 6. The murder case against Michael Peterson doesn't just involve his wife anymore. It involves a friend who died 18 years ago. Just like Kathleen Peterson, Ratliff was found dead at the bottom of a staircase. Eyewitness News reporter Anthony Wilson has more on the potentially explosive information. Breaking news and exhumation. Breaking news. Yeah, whoa. He, I think um, Rudolph put it best when he turned to the filmmakers and he said, well, you have a much better film now. And law professors have something to teach their pupils in law school because this is a crazy bit of evidence. This is, this is a, you know, we, we talked last time about the, you know, the big reveal of the evidence in relation to um, Michael Peterson's extramarital uh, activities, if I could put it that way. Um, and, you know, that raised issues about character and prejudice, but today kind of takes it to a next level with the revelation that um, back in the 80s when Michael Peterson was living in Germany with his first wife, Patty, and his two boys, um, Todd and Clayton, uh, he was very close friends with a neighbor woman, Elizabeth Ratcliffe, who, lo and behold, perished after falling down the stairs. Yeah, I like how Rudolph uh, puts the prosecution theory, the staircase killer, where every 17 years uh, he commits murder by pushing someone down the stairs. Yeah, that is, that was actually, I I wonder if he ever even put it that way to the jury, because it's such a, it does sound ridiculous when you put it that way. Like when you first hear like, (gasps) another woman he was intimate with, you know, close friends with, died by falling down the stairs. And then you think, you know, it's it's an odd pattern for a murderer. Well, and this is the uh, problem with the prejudice that can arise from this sort of evidence. So tuck in, boys and girls, we're going to talk to you about similar fact evidence. Similar fact. Uh, Yes, we are, because we'll probably get a chance to talk about this more in later episodes in terms of the trial and that kind of thing. This is sort of really just 
early musing about um, what use um, might be made or what use the prosecution might try to make um, or just, you know, where is the investigation going with this, um, this big revelation? And I wanted to know your reaction to um, the fact that, you know, upon hearing this news, uh, this breaking news, uh, David Rudolph and his um, private investigator, Ron Garrett, uh, just pack up and go to Germany. Would that be a typical um, situation you might find yourself in one of your cases? Only if there's a fancy parade going on. <laughs> and by fancy, I mean like three girls in a convertible convertible, and guys walking around drinking beer. Um, no, no. I don't think that there would be much valuable information um, given that 17 years have passed. Um, the witnesses, you know, uh, are people that you can talk to over the phone. And certainly I would expect that you don't need to travel all the way to Germany to get the prosecution's case file or the police case file um, from that 17-year-old um, death. Uh, I would expect, in fact, that it would be disclosed to you by the Crown in the course of their similar fact application. Yeah, but at the same time, if you could, would you? I mean, like, there were a few little details. You know, they, they took all the measurements of the stairs because they obviously want to be in a position to question any conclusions that a medical examiner might reach, right? Um, we know that the, the prosecution, uh, the police went to Germany <clears throat> to investigate. Um, so, you know, you kind of want to keep the playing field level. I, I would completely agree with you that it's not necessary. But even just when they first arrive and they're walking down that uh, street with Patty and they're struck by how close together the two houses were, right? That was not apparent to them based on the conversations that they had had. Now, is anything going to turn on that? I don't know. But as an example of how it actually seeing the physical place, um, seeing those stairs, um, you know, could have a value. I mean, whether it would be worth the expenditure is another question. Oh, yeah. And there's tons of stories. I remember... Um my sort of first mentor and boss, uh, uh, Justice Weber now, he's been appointed to the bench, um, has this great story about when he was defense counsel in Toronto and his client was accused of sort of this robbery where he gained access through a window and stole a bunch of stuff and um, you know committed some violent offenses while inside. And the only evidence they had was uh, the accused fingerprint on the outside of the window. And just looking at the brief, it seemed like a very, very weak case because fingerprints, you know, can be left behind and doesn't necessarily mean that you open the window and went in. There's lots of ways that you can deposit fingerprints. But when he went to the scene, there's not a lot of ways you can deposit fingerprints on the outside of a 10th story uh, window. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, seeing the scene, I think, definitely definitely helps. You know, if I have a big case, it's always something that I will do. You know, go visit the scene. It's, it helps just to orient yourself. What I would probably have done here if this was my case, um, in Canada at least, this sort of application, a similar fact application, to be able to tell the jury about this prior you know, occurrence would be something that would be litigated well before the trial. So you would know what would happen. And I'd probably wait until I had, you know, the Crown's application before I went uh, and took a trip because there's only uh, one thing worse than making one trip, uh, expensive trip to Germany to gather information. That's making two. Uh, so I'd want to know what they're saying um, in their application. And I think that would help, uh, help, you know, make some decisions about what to do and what to measure so you're not just you know shooting blanks in the dark yeah but there's certainly no doubt that you know david rudolph is going to want to 
do some probing of his own to try to get to the bottom of, um, you know, I think as he put it, when, when they show him on the way, he says there's kind of there's two things that I want to get out of this trip. I want to understand the relationship both between Michael and Patty and between Michael and Liz Ratcliffe. And I want to know what happened the morning that she died, right? So this these dynamics about the nature of the relationships, I think, are really important because he's hinging a lot in the present case on the relationship between Michael and Kathleen um, to demonstrate that, you know, he could never have possibly killed her because they had such a happy and loving marriage. But now he's wanting to understand more because I think clearly in the back of everyone's mind is the question, like, did he have a relationship with Liz Ratcliffe? He's admitted... Um, directly in the course of the documentary thus far that he did have many affairs when he was married to Patty uh, with both men and women Um, and it does seem like a very very close relationship right like the family goes over for dinner he and his family go over there for dinner and then Patty goes home with the boys and he stays and I think the way Patty put it was like to to give the girls the the babies really Elizabeth's daughters um, that those family moments you know so he's kind of standing in as a surrogate father um, and well, so, and I know behind the scenes um, that DNA testing was done to see if uh, if Margaret or I think it was to see whether Martha was biologically related to uh, Michael Peterson, and she wasn't, and she isn't. That's right. That was something that we saw Rudolph put out in a tweet. So, because I, I guess a lot of people had been asking him that um, because she was young enough that the friendship, you know, was there and active um, but between I, the Petersons and the and the. Radcliffe's. I mean, this trip to Germany um, was important because this is really important evidence. And one of the other ways that Peterson um, gets some advantages in his trial is by conducting jury focus groups. And I think at the focus group, um, you know, th- the importance of that evidence uh, was made clear. This second incident in Europe casts a long shadow in Michael Peterson. And it really does create a lot of doubt. Okay. And so I think that people are going to really question his innocence because of this. Because the two incidences, as I remember reading, were so very similar. So that's an odd way to put it, that the similar fact evidence casts some doubt uh, on this trial. Yes, some doubt as to the accused's innocence. <laughs> um, almost like you're starting with a presumption of guilt. It's I find these scenes really fascinating, like to just see how people are reacting. And also what they're doing too there is they're probing how much is filtering through to people just from the media, right? So a number of people around that table were already aware of the fact that there was something to do with another woman having you know, died in a staircase fall. Um, one thought maybe it was a former spouse, whatever, but so it's clear that details are permeating and that's that's really important to know also, right? That's part of what they're wanting to gauge, I think. Yeah, and this scene with the um, jury focus group also gives a really good insight on how sort of circulative, speculative, and prejudicial reasoning can, can sort of infect uh, uh, the process. Um, at one point, a juror says, well, if we assume that they had an affair... Um, and we assume that she was going to disclose that affair, and then we that would provide motive to for him to kill her, and then that explains like why he would have adopted her kids because that makes him look innocent. Which is, does that not remind you of the DA's actual theory of the case in the Kathleen Peterson murder? Because it's like, well, maybe he discovered something on the computer. Well. 
Yeah, that's a big maybe. So this is, again, just another example of, of, uh, of us seeing sort of speculation and the way that you can always take your primary facts, you know, the adoption that she was found dead, and you can fit that into a speculative theory to sort of bootstrap any argument. That's right. If you're starting from the premise that he did it, you can find a guilty explanation for that. But I did think it was interesting how two women in particular were like, that was like almost a game changer for them to learn that he had taken those girls in. They said, that totally changes my view of him. Only a person with a really good character would do something like that. Which um, is also completely untrue. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows, right? But um, but it's it's interesting. And I remember, I think it was in the last episode where Rudolph had said, you know, this process, these surveys and stuff are important because sometimes things that aren't totally intuitive are revealed. And it was just so interesting to see two different people respond to just that piece of information that Michael Peterson had adopted these two girls um, after the death of their parents. So let's talk about some of the primary facts, some of, of what we know about Elizabeth Ratcliffe and, and her death, and then we can maybe take a little legal dive into similar fact evidence and talk about that and how it's used in a trial mm-hmm. and how it can be admitted or not admitted into a trial. So we know that um, Elizabeth Ratcliffe was found at the bottom of the staircase that she, uh, the cause of death, according to the medical examiner, was um, of cerebral hematoma, um, that there was a spinal tap taken, that it wasn't clear, um, a clear spinal fluid, that the police were called shortly after that she was discovered, that there was no financial motive that uh, was disclosed or that was discovered um, that Peterson took care of the kids. There was no evidence of an affair and definitely everyone interviewed. Um, uh, I think uh, Miss Green and Patty, his first wife, all said that, you know, an affair was something that it was unimaginable. And then we also find out um, that there might be some other evidence to sort of corroborate the, the you know, stroke or the hematoma explanation. And I think we find that out in some later episodes, but there's some other evidence to corroborate that, that she was having some headaches and, and things like that. So the question, I guess, is 17 years later, um, different cast of characters, different country, different stage of life, different everything. Is the fact that she's found at the bottom of the stairs enough to put that evidence before a jury? Well, that is the question. And I think, you know, when when we talk about this, we have to keep in mind, uh, and maybe we'll talk about this a bit in a minute, but is that they do go ahead um, and exhume the body and subject it to a second autopsy. So um, that evidence would potentially be relevant to any kind of a similar fact application in the sense that um, if there's new evidence that, um, you know, suggests that it was something other than a cerebral hemorrhage, uh, i.e. if there's compelling, reliable (laughs) new evidence that, in fact, she was murdered, that would certainly be relevant um, to, to the analysis that we're about to discuss. Yeah, because for it to be a um, similar fact evidence that has any probative value whatsoever, you would need to show that this wasn't a natural death, that it was actually a murder. That's right. So let's just take a quick step back and explain, first of all, 
Um, what we're talking about um, as similar fact evidence is also sometimes referred to as um, past discreditable conduct evidence, um, and it is presumptively inadmissible. So the fact that the accused committed some violent act at some point in the past, for example, um, there's a presumption that that is not admissible on his trial for a subsequent violent offense um, because of the potential for, for real prejudice because we don't want um, jurors to look at that evidence of you know, a past violent act and say, oh, well, this is a guy who commits violent acts, therefore it's more likely that he committed this violent act. That's a form of prohibited reasoning. Um, and so even when so-called similar fact evidence does get admitted, um, the court has to be very, very cautious about explaining to the jury um, the limited purpose for which it's admissible. So point being there, starting point, presumptively inadmissible. Yeah, and that's not because it's not relevant. Um, there's many times when it would be relevant, but you know the proper policy basis for the exclusion is that um, the, the potential for prejudice, for distraction of the jury, um, and for the consumption of, uh, of the jury's sort of attention looking at, at something that is highly prejudicial and may not be very probative, even though it may be relevant to some degree, um, is a good and sound policy basis for having that sort of automatic starting point of that it shouldn't be admissible. That's right. And for those people that are listening who aren't lawyers or who um, haven't looked at similar fact evidence or even maybe evidence in some time, I just want to explain what we mean when we talk about prejudicial effect, because it can be misleading if you don't have the context. So uh, prejudice doesn't mean that the evidence might increase the chances of conviction, right? Like Then it, all evidence would be prejudicial. Exactly. It doesn't just mean like, ugh, it looks bad for the accused. So it doesn't just mean that it might increase the chances of conviction, but rather that the evidence might be improperly used by the trier of fact. So, and the trier of fact in cases like this being the jury. So, so it's presumptively inadmissible, but when considering its admissibility, the court is preoccupied with two considerations, really. The probative value on the one hand and the prejudicial effect on the other. So what do we mean when we talk about probative value? Well, so the probative value, the, the first step that you really need to, to do, at least in Canada, when you're examining sort of the admissibility of the similar fact evidence, you have to tell the court why you want it admitted. What's the issue that needs that you're that you say this evidence will help the jury uh, jury with? Is it an issue of identity? Um, this is, I think, something that that we often think of when we think of sort of this sort of similar fact or bad character, uh, bad past act evidence. Um, someone breaks into your house, you don't know who it is, but in the Home Alone situation, they leave the the taps running in the sink, and um, that is sort of a hallmark or a calling card. And then you catch uh, a burglar who um, you can prove has broken into other houses and left uh, the the tap running in the sink, and on the basis of that sort of hallmark feature, um, that distinctive striking similarity, um, that can be used as evidence that he committed the break in and enter into your house. I love that you use that example because I use that example with my students, the wet bandits from Home Alone, because it's a really good accessible example of sort of a calling card, um, a signature, right? And so even if you have really no idea in the present case who the perpetrator was, if you can show that your accused was the perpetrator in those other cases, or you have 
um, evidence that the 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 calling card is so similar that it defies coincidence that it could be two different people committing these um, series of robberies, right? Then that can be probative that it was the accused um, who was the perpetrator. And so this evidence can also go to other issues as well. Um, it can go to an issue of sort of animus, for example, um, that the accused acted one way in the past, showing an animus because of a specific circumstance against an individual, and that might be relevant in a current case. That's um, right. Um, There's sort of, but I think just, I mean, just to, to cut this short a bit, the general sort of catch-all that, that I see all the time is that it goes to prove the actus reus. So the act, in this case, that it was a murder. Exactly. And I, I can give a, an example of a case where um, similar fact evidence was admissible to establish that a death was a homicide. And that's a case that occurred in Canada where... Um, a woman's young infant had died and there was the autopsy was ambiguous as to whether it was natural causes or was it a murder and in the course of the investigation the police found remains of several other deceased infants on the property like multiple like eight or nine or ten or something like that and the question was whether the evidence that there were multiple dead babies on the property was probative um, not that it was this particular woman that killed the baby in question, but that maybe it was a murder and not um, a, an accident or a natural death. So like these are this is going to the question of was it a homicide or not? And that obviously is the question du jour in the Kathleen Peterson murder, right? Is that the police are saying it was a murder, the defense is saying it was an accident. So there's the prosecution, the DA is going to try to make the case that the fact that Peterson... Um, was closely associated with someone in the past who died by falling down the stairs, that it somehow defies coincidence that he could be, um, you know, so closely associated with two women who fall, died by falling down the stairs. What's the huge logic gap there is that at this point anyway, there really is no evidence that Elizabeth Radcliffe died by murder. No, and I mean, that's going to become important uh, as we move forward. Um, but let's assume that, let's leave that aside for a second and look at some of the other factors here. Because when you're looking at this sort of evidence, um, you know, the degree of similarity is, is just one factor. Um, and, you know, our Supreme Court has been pretty clear that, you know, it's not sort of a weighing game where you put dissimilarities on one side and similarities on the other. And then, you know, you see which one comes out in the balance. Um, and it is the prosecution's job to, uh, it's their onus to prove on a balance of probabilities that the probative value of this sort of evidence outweighs the prejudice that it, that it might inject. But the court has said that, you know, you don't need, it's not this balancing or this, you know, you look count similarities and count differences, or that, you know, similarities need to be necessarily high or low depending on the case. But you have to sort of look at the totality of circumstances, including um, the nature of the acts, um, any distinctive features, but then also things like the passage of time. Um, how long ago did the similar act happen? And one of the reasons that is referenced in, in the case of Handy, which is a Canadian case from 2002, and one of the lead, still one of the leading cases on this issue, is that people aren't robots and people change. So something, the longer a time that goes by, um, the less likely that that similarity is going to have a, a probative value because things are fluid. People change, 
And just because uh, someone acted one way, even if he can prove that they acted that way 17 years ago, doesn't necessarily mean that they are acting that way 17 years later. Well, exactly. And I mean, the real challenge for Michael Peterson in this case, if this evidence was going to be admissible to somehow bolster the prosecution's case that he murdered Kathleen Peterson, is that now you almost have effectively two murder trials, right? Like now he has to defend himself that he didn't commit the murder 17 years ago as part of his attempt to defend himself in the current case. And that's really challenging, especially, you know, given, like you said, it happened in another country, it happened a long time ago. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, the exhumation and everything around that. Um, but certainly one of the factors in terms of the probative value of the evidence is the strength of the evidence that the discreditable conduct even occurred, right? And in this case, at this point in time anyway, you know, we'll see what happens with the, the, the new autopsy. But essentially, like, the evidence is incredibly weak that, that Elizabeth Radcliffe was murdered, and if she was murdered, that Michael Peterson murdered her. There's there's no evidence that he um, murdered her other than the fact that he was in her presence the day that she died and was at her place the next day. And that really sort of is the the twin prejudices that, that arise in this case and arise in many similar fact cases. The first is sort of that moral prejudice that the jury, sort of like that gentleman in the focus group, is going to hear this evidence and is going to jump to the conclusion that um, he's a murderer, that he leaves a trail of, you know, he's a staircase killer. Um, that's the moral prejudice. But what you've just described is the reasoning prejudice, which is the second branch of prejudice that we need to look at. This is going to be incredibly distracting for a jury um, because they're going to be trying two murders. Um, they're going to get the issues confused. They might find him, you know, they might find him not guilty of one and guilty of the other and get confused about which is which it's, and whatnot. Um, and it's going to take an incredibly uh, long period of time to, to do this, which inevitably results in me messiness in the courtroom. That's right. Like one of the specific factors is whether the trial might disproportionately focus on whether the similar act happened, right? So this is a trial about whether Michael Peterson killed Kathleen Peterson, but it could become a trial within a trial on whether Michael Peterson killed Elizabeth Radcliffe. And, and so essentially he would need to win both trials. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, in the course of that disproportionate focusing on this other case, there's also the fact that Michael Peterson is not very well situated to respond to those allegations because, like we said, the passage of time. Um, and I, I suspect, I don't think this really gets flushed out in the course of the documentary, but it's it seems to me, yes, there was an autopsy performed. That would be expected given how young she was and that she wasn't sick. It doesn't seem, it almost seems like the reverse of, the, of Michael Peterson's current case where it doesn't appear that there was much in the way of a criminal investigation that happened. Like she fell, they did, they took the spinal fluid, they did an autopsy and they concluded it was, she died by natural causes. We're not, we're sure how extensive, but it seems likely that there's not going to be a very comprehensive investigative file um, to, for Michael Peterson to rely on or to start from or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, there was an investigation. The police were called. The medical examiner was called. There was an autopsy. There is a prosecution file. Um, questions were asked of people. And even at the end of the day, you have an expert who went to the scene, saw the body uh, 17 years ago, um, made their findings, um, and determined that it wasn't a homicide. And then let's just assume, 
maybe we'll find it in the next episode. 17 years later, um, the prosecution team who is now gunning for Peterson redoes an autopsy and finds that it was a homicide. I don't even know if that's that's the best case scenario for the prosecution. And if you're looking at a balance of probabilities, if you're looking at putting those things on a scale, I don't think that even that would overcome the sort of the rigorous analysis that you need to have to have this sort of really prejudicial and, and damaging evidence admitted. So even in the best case, I don't think the prosecution wins this. And I don't think that they win this in Canada at all. But the Crown's whole or the, the DA's whole purpose here. They, they probably know all that. And, and I imagine that the law on this is probably not that different there, but you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to ask David Rudolph about that. But uh, no, I mean, to me, it's just like the evidence of the gay affair is that they want it for the prejudicial purpose and they're not very preoccupied. Yeah, but they with... would need to bring the pretrial application yes. and like you can't just show it to a jury then have a judge say ignore it. Like no. it would be pre-vetted in a pretrial application. And I just don't see that even if they had an expert saying that, you know, it was homicide by pushing down the stairs. I mean, I don't know if that overcomes sort of the balance of probabilities onus that the Crown needs to overcome when you have the, you know, the investigation from 17 years ago that says it wasn't a homicide. I suspect we'll talk about this more when we get to the the episodes with the trial, but maybe we could just talk a little bit too about this whole idea of having the body exhumed, which is is relevant to the discussion that we're having in part because you have to you have to okay you have an autopsy that's taken essentially contemporaneously to the death that concludes that it's a death by natural causes. Okay, the woman is then um, transferred from Germany to the United States to be buried. She's then you know and she's we know that the body's preserved through embalming and everything else. Yeah, which fundamentally changes sort yeah. of the, the thing that you're looking at, which is why you generally don't do autopsies. It's not preferable to do autopsies after the body's been embalmed. That's right. So then the body's then, you know, buried for 17 years. It's then disturbed by digging it up. And then, and I find this part particularly disturbing, is that then the body is moved from its resting place in Bay City, Texas, 1,200 miles to Chapel Hill, North Carolina for the second autopsy. And so when you're talking about the balance of probability standard, you have to ask yourself, you know, assuming again that this second autopsy is going to conclude that it was a homicide. And let's not forget, the second autopsy is going to be performed by the same medical examiner, the um, Deborah Radish, who performed the autopsy on Kathleen Peterson. Do you know who shares your concerns? Who shares my concerns? David Rudolph. (laughs) They could have had that autopsy done in Texas. We suggested that they do it in Texas with a neutral forensic pathologist. And there are some world-class forensic pathologists there in Texas who could have done that. Instead, what the prosecutors did was they spent thousands of dollars transporting her body 1,200 miles from Bay City, Texas to Chapel Hill uh, in order to allow Deborah Radish, who had already concluded that Kathleen Peterson's death was not accidental, to perform the autopsy on Elizabeth Ratliff. Yeah, it's completely incredible. And this fact alone taints the whole process. Exactly. Like when you're thinking about that balance of probability standards and you put all of those factors onto whatever new opinion comes, you know, 
disturbing of the body, the body being not in the condition that it was in obviously 18 years ago, moved and then examined by a person who has already concluded essentially that Michael Peterson is a murderer. Uh, I don't see how, if you have to put the first opinion next to the second opinion, how the second opinion, and, and then again, like you've said, even if the second opinion did have any value, it surely has to be given less weight than the first opinion. Yeah, but even if even if you could, on some standard, conclude that, okay, fine, Elizabeth Radcliffe was murdered, you still have no evidence that Michael Peterson did it, and it's still hard to see how that advances in any non-kangaroo court the prosecution of Michael Peterson for the murder of Kathleen Peterson. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't just assume, even if she was murdered, that it was him. You certainly can't bootstrap your argument and say, how do we know that he murdered Liz? Well, because he murdered Kathleen. Well, how do you know that he murdered Kathleen? Because he murdered Liz. I mean, that's classic bootstrapping. And and that's exactly what the, the exclusionary rule is trying to avoid. Exactly. And the opinion of uh, Radish, the, the pathologist, um, having her do the autopsy is... I think something that should be fatal to the process itself. I mean, in this episode, you see how giddy and excited the police officers are delivering the body to, to oh. the pathology lab, and they are very they are very sure leading in um, as to what the result of that autopsy is going to be. What you should do here is it should be a scientific process where you have a neutral. Um, pathologist who doesn't know why they're doing the autopsy, doesn't know anything about the other case, and they can have an independent, non-tainted conclusion. It's sort of like when you're doing um, a photographic lineup. Um, when you're showing the suspect the photographs, one of the, or when you're showing the one of the witnesses the photographs and, and ask them to pick out a suspect in a lineup, one of the things that you want to do is make sure that the process is double blind. So the person showing the pictures doesn't know who you know who which the, one's the, the which one's the suspect so you can't have any you know subtle or unconscious leading or tipping off or anything like that and certainly you avoid the concern of any intentional or malicious sort of messing with the procedure and the results and here you have michael peterson with a very competent counsel who well in advance of the court proceeding actually raises this and says to the DA, like, listen, if you're going to do this, I think it's ridiculous that you're going to exhume this body, but if you're going to do it, let's have someone, first of all, let's have someone in Texas to do it. Like even leaving aside the, um, you know, maybe this is probably not a huge thing, but the potential that the 1200 mile journey somehow, you know, impacts on the state of the body in a way that has an effect on the thing. But also it's just such an indignity, like as if it's not bad enough to exhume a body after 18 years, to drive it across the country and then presumably back when you have perfectly competent, independent medical examiners that it's are hard, local. hard to taint the jury pool when, it's, when it's across the country and all the cameras aren't there to, to watch the body being rolled into the, the office. It, and it's, it's hard to reach any conclusion other than they want someone who's on side to do the autopsy as the reason for you know this ridiculous journey and I think you're right to point out too like you know when we're talking about in the context of this sort of being an indignity to the deceased too is 
everyone's demeanor at the graveside too like there's one official we don't know is it a police officer is it someone from the funeral what who is it but you know and he's like this is my first one like my first exhumation and then you have that ridiculous reporter who's like you know trying to do her story but she keeps flubbing and then laughing like crazy and I, I just thought that whole scene I found disturbing yeah I mean it it certainly is not good in any way and you know there's an argument here that that they are bringing the body across the country to have the press there to um, you know feed the jury pool this information and poison it in the jury pool and they're bringing it specifically so they can get the result they're looking for and I mean that's in no one's interest no and I think in subsequent episodes we'll have a lot of opportunities to discuss um, ob- objectivity and forensic analysis and um, we'll get an opportunity to see how uh, Deborah Radish fares on cross-examination and we'll, I think that's going to give us a lot to talk about. Yeah, and I mean, I think at the end of the day, what, what at least in the Canadian context, these applications are incredibly difficult to win, even when they're strong, because especially in front of a jury, um, the prejudicial impact of this sort of evidence is almost insurmountable. That's right. I think, I mean, if I were the judge here, I would be saying the probative value is very low and the potential prejudice is extremely high. Even if the probative value was high, was moderately high, this is one of those ones where as a prosecution team, you might sit back and think maybe we shouldn't bring this because if we win, it's going to mean a new trial from the Court of Appeal because it is that bad. It is that damning. It is that dangerous. And that's what our court has said. I suspect it may not be the same in the United States. Well, you also just get the feeling that these district attorneys have very little... Well, well, they either have no concern about prejudice, like they just don't see the prejudice. Oh, no, they see the prejudice. if you want to be less generous, you would say they are looking to capitalize on prejudice at every turn because their case is otherwise so weak. And so that's why... You know, they like because when you, as we talked about last time, like they appear to have no insight whatsoever into how prejudicial the evidence of this, you know, gay affair might be. They just see it, they're like foaming at the mouth with excitement, right? Like, oh, this is the best evidence for us. And because they know um, what a jury is going to do with it, and you know that on this thing too, it's exactly the same. They are going to do everything that they can to get this evidence in front of the jury. And, and Garrett, the private investigator, makes that point right in the beginning of the episode. Like they're going to do everything they can to make sure the jury sees this because, you know, they know that a jury is going to say, "Uh, oh, one dead woman at the bottom of the stairs, another dead woman at the bottom of the stairs," and it's as simple as that. And the other thing that it shows again is even when you have an accused like Rudolph with you know financial resources that exceed you know ninety nine point nine percent of all the other accused in every other case, the power imbalance between the state and the accused is still unbelievable. Um, think about if Rudolph was the one who needed to get a body exhumed and transported across the country, um, and you know the defense experts never come into court with sort of the sheen and respectability and credibility of the state's experts. Um, Number one, a a defendant would never be able to undertake this sort of activity just because of the expense and the procedure and and everything else. And you'd never get the consent either from the family. And number two, even if they did, it would be worthless evidence because 
you know, your expert doesn't have the built in and enhanced sort of credibility of a state's expert from the, you know, from the FBI laboratory or from like the state pathology department. And so it's really when, when I talk about the imbalance between the, the state and the accused, it's not just resources, but it's the ability to do things that even an accused with resources can't. And then the imbalance goes even further into, you know, how that evidence is presented and and the credibility that the crown sort of walks into court with and their experts are are given by the jury i just try to picture like if it was uh rudolph on behalf of peterson seeking to have that body exhumed for some kind of analysis i just picture frida black the he's a monster yeah like how they would characterize that you know, this is simply rude, um, Peterson wanting to re-victimize. You know, and, and like what I just is he gonna do? What is that devious man with the homosexual <laughs> pornography gonna do with that corpse? Oh, God. Anyway, so I think that's pretty much episode three, right? I think so. Yeah, we're so almost getting to the good stuff. We are. I'm I'm getting excited actually for the trial because there's just so much more to talk about. Uh, and apologies again for initially claiming that we would record two episodes That's a week false. because now the kids are out of school and it's summer. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but uh, we'll get right into episode four as soon as we can. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at M Spratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh.